Hey everyone, Dylan Alexander here. Welcome to episode 8 of the Unintentional Podcast. Today I speak with Crust, and it was amazing to catch up with him again. It's been a long time since we spoke. Just talk about his whole process of growing up as an artist, starting off with Fresh Four in their top 10 hit, Wishing on a Star, and getting dropped by the label a few months later, then developing a new sound with Ronnie and Surf and Dime becoming Represent. Um, how they got signed, how they won the Mercury Prize, the pressures of touring, the excitement of it all. It's an amazing conversation. He's an amazing guy. I um, hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Uh, thanks for listening. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate you doing this. I haven't seen your face for ages. Uh, I see you now and again on Gloucester Road. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah I'm a Gloucester Road boy. I've, I've been, I mean, 55 now. I don't think I've really ever not lived near the Gloucester Road, you know? Okay. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's just kind of, it seems to be the central artery for me, definitely. Yeah. I appreciate you doing this. So, I mean, the basic gist is, um, I mean, I'm just, I, I've been talking about writing a book for about, I don't know, 25 years, and I haven't got around mm. to it, and I probably never will, is the truth. Uh, and maybe I will, we'll see. But um, a mate of mine suggested, why don't I just talk to people? and put it online and then each one I've done has been slightly more together and professional than the last and each one has reached slightly more people than the last and clearly there's a good demand for it you're the kind of you're the first person I've interviewed on this that isn't someone I've known really well so it's quite an interesting little experiment but for Mm. me you're a super important voice in the process of everything Bristol and generally, you know, uh, national and international. And of course we bumped into each other at various stages of your career in various places. Mm. Um, so what I do is I just start at a point and see where it takes us basically, if that's right. And the first time I met you, I don't expect you to remember this, um, was probably at Mickey B's place, Jody's dad's in a kind of early fresh four days somewhere, I reckon. Oh. Because right. um, we were using Jody's studio, Sol Ray and I were using Jody's studio to write music in, mm. and a lot of people, or a lot of people, were hanging out in Mickey B's kitchen around that kind of period. Yeah, you know, um, and then suddenly you're on the telly, <laughs> and I walked into pubs, and your music was playing, and you know you're on MTV and whatever all the video things were and stuff like that. And then there was a sort of gap, and then we met again in Miami about six years yeah. later. I remember the Miami one. Yeah. yeah. And that was when, you know, it was going off, going off you guys. Um, yeah. uh, but I just thought I'd start with a fresh four thing, if that's all right. Cause that was a kind of, you know, that was a real starting point. And um, after the kind of massive attack thing was like the next, you know, thing to come out of Bristol that really woke people up to, yeah. you know, the, all the different things that were going on. So you yeah. talk me through that a bit if you want to. Well, you know, I grew up in Norwest, so yeah. there wasn't much sort of anything going on there in a way of culture. And, you know, I grew up in a sort of a musical household and, you know, I was about 12, 13, you know, and I was a little rude boy into the specials and whole mod thing. So, the, the roll-ups and Doc Martens and stuff. Yeah. And that was working out all right. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And then, you know, you get to about 14 and life's changed a little bit. And my brother, one day me and my brothers were sat in, were sat in my mum's front room, just hanging out, a few of us. My older brother, got an older brother, he just comes in the room and he just gives us this VHS cassette tape. He says, watch this. And we like, look at the cover and it's got this thing called, it's all graffiti painting, it's called Wildstar. And we're like, what's this? He goes, just watch it. And we're like, all right, all right, all right. So we put it in and we watched this thing. And an hour later, my tiny little brain is blown. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, what did we just watch? You know what I mean, what the fuck was that? And we watched it again and again. And then in the morning, that same morning, me and my brother, we said, right, we're going we're gonna to do what we just saw in this video. We're going to start a crew. We didn't give the name much thought. (laughs) 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 Let's just do it. And the next day we had a meeting in in my mum's front garden and we invited people that saw the video and a few others and said, right, we're going to do this B-boy thing. We just saw, you saw the video, you saw the same thing we saw. Who's in? Let's go. And, you know, a few people put their hands up ones we didn't left and that was really the start of this kind of adventure really we just basically we just copied what we saw on the video um we went to the school the next day it's all happened really quick it was like boom yeah. boom boom we went to the school the next day we said right we want to do this whole break dancing thing because like, what's that and he goes right well if you let us have this room we'll put cardboard down you know and we'll stay out of trouble, we'll have an after-school club, and, and they were like, great, fantastic. So we, we charged two pence on the door, and <laughs> that was the first hustle. And then, and then we did that, like, almost every two, three weeks, we'd hold a little party, break yeah. dancing, and sure enough, people came. You know, kids in school were intrigued by it. Some of them already knew what break dancing was, and they would come and do their break dance moves. And, you know, we, we, you know, do beatboxing, start rapping and stuff. And then, you know, that was my last year in school. We used to go to a youth club around the corner in Norwest called Eagle House. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as soon as school finished, we went to Eagle House and we did the same thing there. We said, can we have a room? We want to do this breakdancing thing. You know, it's going to, and our thing was, it's going to keep us off the streets and out of trouble. And they're great. Yeah. So again, Gave us a room. We did the same thing. We spray painted it. We put a paper down, a cardboard down. Uh, but this time, we had, we had grown a little bit, and we managed to get a turntable. So we had one turntable. We had, you know, uh, one mixer and a couple of records. We started doing this thing once. We started doing the back room every week, but then we started to hold a party. So we clubbed together and we got our parents to support us and we bought another turntable and a realistic mixer and some speakers and we started to hold our own parties in there. Uh, And that went on for about eight or nine months, maybe a year. And we got all the surrounding crews. By then there was crews. There's a Totterdam crew, the Arctic crew, Wittywood crew, Bairmanster crew. We just invited them all up. And every every month we'd have a party and we'd have breakdance burn-offs and we'd have DJ scratching competitions, that sort of thing, rapping. And it was just like what we saw on the video. And that went on for a while. And then one day, um, 
my brother um, and, and well, a few of us were walking down through uh, Victoria Park going, going yeah. into town and we walked past these row of squats and, and so we know these squats because there's a shop there called Sid's and we used to go past there and you could buy two bottles of Diamond White for a pound on the, on the way to the Moon Club, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> that was the spot, right? So, but one day we walked past and we just heard music coming from, from it. And we're like, what's that music coming from? So we walked down a bit further and you could walk down the lane. There's like a row of houses and they were all squats. Yeah. And this is where we ended up meeting these guys Dick and um, Posey um, and somebody else as well. But they had these squats and we became friends with them. And right next to the squats where, where, where uh, these guys were living, Dick and that, was a band called Vid Borden and the Authentics. I don't know if you remember them. I do remember the name, yeah. Yeah. And big brass band, amazing. And then next, to, next door to them was Mark Stewart and yeah. uh, Gary Clayle. Yeah. And we were like, what the fuck? Like we just walked into this like, like hippie commune right in the middle of Bristol. Yeah. And so the guys in the spot are like, you know, uh, we started hanging out with them. He goes, yeah, we got a spare room. I go, have you? <laughs> <laughs> ding ding. Same thing. Put our yeah. speakers in there. Put cardboard down on the floor. Spray paint. Them. So this is pattern. So we stayed. We started hanging out with these guys, and we were going to like, you know all day practically just living with these guys you know having someone to play music ended up just hang going around the country with them doing gigs had this like little network and stuff in wales and places like that and then we see that they got this scout hut at the bottom of the garden and we're like what's going on with that scout hut and that goes oh nothing so we went and had a look we made a door in the hall went in the same thing <laughs> it was like this big empty space we're like right, we're going to hold parties in here every month now. But this time, we're at that stage now. We're, we're about, we're, you know, we know people. We've been around town. We've met all the massive guys, John Stapleton, Too Bad, FBI, all those people. And we're like, right, we're going to invite you guys to come over here and play in, in our warehouse. And so that's what we did. We cleaned it up. We put tarpaulin on the roof, and we started to hold parties in there once a month. And that just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then after about almost a year of that, my brother's like, I got this idea. Flynn's like, I got this idea. I want to, because one of the big things we were doing back then, you'd mix a cappella with another tune, hip hop tune, a house tune. And you kind of, it's like you're doing your own live remix. Yeah. Like a, a mashup. And he's like, right, I got this idea. I want to mix funky drummer, phaser riding high. And I want to put this vocal over the top of it. But like, can you do that? <laughs> I mean, it's like we didn't know how to produce we didn't know about sampling or anything it just sounded like a really interesting idea you know and he was like yeah I'm going to do it and it's like oh you're going to do it he goes oh and, you know this Myth and Mighty guys they make they got a studio they make music and it's like oh alright all right. so sure enough he goes to see them explains his idea and then he's in the studio working on this track for about a year and after about a year of working on this track he, you know, he's bringing it back on cassettes and we're all listening to it, but he's Flynn is the one in the studio with those guys. Yeah. You know, once a week, twice a week. And then boom, the track's finished. And the Smith and Mighty's manager at the time is Erskine Thompson. And mm. he, he hears it and he's like, the, the story is 
he phones Mick Clark from Virgin and says, hey, Mick, I got the next, tri- the next big thing for you. And this is all on his answer machine, apparently. And he just plays the tune on Mick Clark's answer machine and puts the phone down. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, somehow, obviously Mick Clark knows because he phones him back. And then we were signed. We get signed to 10 records, Virgin. Yeah. And then really that's when the chaos ensues, you know what I mean? It's just got, after that, it just went, you know, we're these guys who were playing in a squat who, you know, my brother had made this record. And then within, you know, three months being signed, the track got the charted and it just went crazy. You know, it went number 40, number 30, number 20, uh, number 10. And then, you know, Lot, our lives changed. You know, we were in London a lot doing, you know, we were trying, like, we didn't really know what we were doing. And consequently, eight months later, we got dropped by the label. And that was a really big sort of realisation about business, about life, how harsh things really were. We were just riding this high. We were like 18, 19. We didn't really know what we were doing. We had no experience in the studio. Flynn had made the track. Smith and Mighty were the engineers. They knew how to, you know, work in the studio. Um, we, we bought equipment. We hired stuff. And we were tinkering. We made loads of music. But it wasn't on the level of what the track was. And I think they put out another single, Release Yourself. It didn't do as well. And the rest of the stuff we did wasn't just, we just didn't know what we were doing. So we got dropped. And then it was back to earth. I was living with Sub on on uh, Brigstock Road in, in St. Paul's and um, we started hanging out with Dai and we started to go to these free raves. Yeah. And uh, so I'm moving on now from Fresh Four. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. That's fine. Yeah, and so you should. I'm I, I just thinking about, I mean, it's different for kids now because they've got the online space, but the, you're right about that time in Bristol when so much Bristol was squats. Mm. So there was so much empty space that you could just find a room to go and do things in. And now there's just no empty space. And, oh. you know, and I guess that's why the online world exists. But mm. um, those late 80s, and there were so many squats. I remember Royal York Crescent, after Royal York Crescent being a squat. Yeah. Um, you know, you can... Portland Square. Portland Square. You can believe that now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, then the rave thing came in and that sort of changed everything for all of us, didn't it, really? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was like, for me, I mean, I grew up in a musical household where we listened to everything. And because in Bristol at that time, you go out to a party, there was, it was, it was just, you listened to great music. Yeah. So I, you know, in my, you know, one of the things I, I just want to finish off from the last two, you know, when we were in London, we were in recording studios and... I remember the first time I went into this big, like a big, big room and I walked in there and it was like, it clicked. It was like, Mm -hmm. this is what I'm going to do. I could, it was like, I was so sure I had that feeling. Like when I watched Whilst, I knew I was going to do that. When I saw the squats, I knew we were going to do something now. When I, when I walked in this room, I had that instant feeling. I knew, I didn't know how, but I just kept that feeling. When I came back to Bristol though, simultaneously, we were going to the raves, we discovered the raves, but at the same time, my brother had a sampler and an Atari ST1040, and 
I bugged him for, for months. I said, show me how to use it. Show me how to use it. Show me how to use it. And I basically slept on his floor for the next three years until he showed me how to use it. So Dai was already working with Jody. So yeah. he was learning, he was learning the stuff. I was coming back and hanging out with Sub and talking to him and showing him how to use the stuff. My brother was getting, you know, working with Flynn, uh, sorry, with Flora, and he was working at his own thing. So there was, there was these little seedlings of something happening. There was a community building, and, and, and I remember this guy called Charlie Cheese, one of Bob and Ray's friends. He calls one day, and he's like, you've got to come around to my house. I'm having a meeting. I'm going to show you guys something. It's like, what are you talking about? He goes, no, you need to be here at 7 o'clock tonight. I'm going to show you guys something. And I was like, all right, all right. So yeah, knock on the door. And there's about 10 people in this guy's flat, right? And we're all standing around this Atari ST1040. He goes, I'm going to... he goes, you know what, guys? This is the future of making music. He goes, what are you talking about? He goes, this is, this is Cubase. Like, <laughs> he's, like, he's like, what was Cubase? He goes, watch this. And I'd seen Notator before that, and it was a horrible thing to use. I was like, yeah. I couldn't even begin to fathom it. Yeah. But what he showed us for Cubase, it was like revolutionary. And he goes, he, after his demonstration, <laughs> <laughs> he goes, look, he gave everybody a disc. And I remember there was like, there was the, it was the who's who at that time. I think Peter D was there, Bonnet was there, I was there. Uh, a few other people was there that went on and some of them didn't go on to make music but it was like that was the inception yeah, point yeah. That, uh, of the whole thing right and so I was like totally blown away I went back to my brother I said look we got to start using this but I plugged it in and then because we were so close to Rob and Ray we me dying sub because I lived on Brickstock Road we used to just go around knock on Rob and Ray's door and it's like you know can we come and hang out? And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So graciously they let us hang out, but we were obviously these annoying kids. Do you know what I mean? Just <laughs> want, you know, they go, look, we've got a back room. Have the back room. They put a, a, an Atari in there, a couple of speakers and an FZ sampler. And boom, we had our first, you know, yeah. studio to, to hang out in. While that was going on though, like you said, the raves were kicking off. And we started to go to the race with Robin Ray, like every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, all these weekend things. And it was me, Diane Sub, Robin Ray, um, Peter D. And, you know, every week we're going out to these raves. We're listening to this music. And we, you know, we were like the, the, the breakbeat kids, you know. Yeah. So we, we were like scratch DJs, breakbeat kids. And we'd be hearing this you know, you know, we'd be hearing massive like the Wild Birds back in the days. So people cut up these two records, right? We're in the rave now, and we'd be hearing some of these breaks that we heard yeah, these yeah. Guys in these rave tunes. And we're like, what the fuck is this? Like, you know, either we are, and then boom, boom, and then the break, and it's like, what's going on? What is this? You know, and we're like, this is nuts, right? And so we kind of just followed the thread. We, every time we heard one of these tunes, we'd go out to the decks and see if we could find out who they were. And, you know, it, it got to a point now where we'd go to the raves. I mean, we were having fun in that. But every time we heard one of these tunes, we were breaking it and we recognized. We, we yeah. you know, we'd prick our ears up and be like, what is this? What is it? We had to figure it out. 
And so eventually we come back from the raves and we go back to Robin Rays and we just start experimenting ourselves in the studio. We had all the breaks. We were scratch DJ. Yeah. We had all the yeah. so we started sampling the breaks and trying to figure out, you know, what we were hearing and trying to sort of emulate it in a way. And so that's kind of how we started getting into this whole production thing. Um and for us, we, we took it took about four or five years, but finally we kind of got something that that was kind of the very, very early stages of jungle, jungle techno. And we were just experimenting and pushing buttons, feeling back what the energy that we were feeling in the race, but trying to also understand what our experience was in hip hop and, and die with his experience and some of his experience. And then we kind of mashed these things Mash together. Mashed them all together, yeah. Yeah, and it was like, we just, it was just, you know, it was just this weird stuff. It sounds, sometimes it sounded like techno, sometimes it sounded like a bit reggae, but a lot of it had the floor to the floor, you know, and it was just really, really experimental. Nothing, nothing that we could put out, but there was loads of ideas there. And it got to a point now where we had so much stuff, you know, we got confident, we kind of sort of had an idea of what we were doing. We could build an intro, a drop, and, you know, an outro, and... We just had tons of material. We're like, right, we need to start. We need to do something with it. Um, one day, Sub comes round and he says, "I just met this guy called Ronnie," <laughs> and he's like, "He's talking about he wants to start a label." I'm like, "Really? Let's all have a meeting." <laughs> <laughs> it was really just like that. We, yeah, yeah. Ronnie, I'd known known him. I've never met him, and I, I met him. His brother used to provide the sound system for our squats in right okay yeah yeah he used to come along and that's kind of initially how i kind of met him or we met each other but then fast forward you know i used to see him in in the ends and that would say hello and whatever but we never really spoke we never really sat down and said but that day he was like right let's have a meeting so we had a meeting in my flat on, on mashley road and he came round and we go, right, you know, we just started talking. We played some of our tunes, he played some of his tunes, and they were exactly the same. It was like nuts. He had batches and batches of tunes of, of the same kind of jungle thing that we were doing, but from his point of view, we're like, this is nuts. And we just sat there and we just chatted and chatted and chatted. And that was from that day onwards, we the four of us were pretty much inseparable. Yeah. So it's like you'd kind of met each other and turns out you'd been experimenting in the same, in similar ways and bringing in the similar styles and that kind of thing. Yeah, his brother was um, Andrew from UD4. Oh, okay. Right. So uh, he, he uh, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. the same thing we were doing, cutting up breaks, he was doing on his brother's turntable. So he had the records, he had the, the breaks, he knew all the breaks, he knew all the, he even, like... He went a step further, though. He actually knew the names of the breaks. <laughs> <laughs> but we never knew the Well, I never knew the names of the breaks. I yeah. knew the breaks. I had them all. But he went deep. He, he knew yeah. the name. And one time I played, he goes, oh, that's the first activity break. Oh, this step break. He's like, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> he, knew, he knew his game. So it, was just, it just felt like a natural fit, you know, and we just started talking. And, you know, we tried to... You know, we tried to, once we joined and we started collaborating, we started hanging out in his studio. He started hanging out in ours. We started making tunes together. Ronnie and Dai started working on stuff together. Ronnie and Sub, yeah. me and I, me and Don. And it just, we had this thing going. 
And then it was like, maybe like eight, nine months went past. And again, we, an, another batch of tunes came around. It just got to a point now it was like, all right, let's start sending this stuff out. And this is the days when you sent out that tapes. Yeah. Right? So we're sending out that tapes um, and nothing's happening. No one's interested. No one gets the music. People are telling us to change our style, change your name. Yeah. You know, it always know you're onto a good thing when people start telling you that, don't it? They don't get it. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, yeah, it was really kind of like that. Nobody got it. Like nobody. And it was a bit disheartening. And in the end, it was like, we just said, fuck it, let's just do it ourselves. Yeah. And, like, how are we going to do it? It's like, well, we don't, we're not, we'll, we'll figure it out. You know, we, we figured it out to make music. We can figure it out to create a label. So we, we created a name, Full Cycle, you know, and, and, and one of the, the events that, you know, kind of is synonymous with us is the Glastonbury meeting where we all hung out at Glastonbury for a weekend. And that was the day where we really solidified the relationship and just and made when that. was that then? Uh, yeah, you're really pushing me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no good with dates. Right, uh, fair enough. That's all right. But it's got to be real early 90s. Like 93, really, 92. Probably yeah, 90s. Well, let's say early 90s. That's fine, mate. No, no, no stress. Yeah. Um, and so... Yeah, we the Glastonbury meeting was really us just sort of coming together. I remember just sitting on top of this hill and us just looking out, and it was like a scene from a movie. The sun was coming down, you know, we're high as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and we're just like, this is what we're going to do, you know. And again, it was like one of those aha moments. You just know. Yeah. We were four guys, we were serious. We had nothing to lose. There was nothing going on. We felt abandoned by society. You know, we all were a single parent um, family, except for Ronnie. And we'd all grown up in that era of B-boys and hip-hop. We had the same cultural references. One, one person could start a sentence and anyone could finish it. We were that tight, you know. And for the next seven, eight years, we kind of literally were married. Joined yeah. It, it, yeah, yeah. 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 And that time was phenomenal because we all realised we could probably do it ourselves. And I think when the massive attack thing happened, I think I mentioned this with Nick and also with Marty, um, that was really the first time that we saw people that we'd seen in the street or people we'd seen at parties suddenly just apparently do their own thing and not have to compromise too much. And then the dance music explosion, you know, everyone was starting labels and it was quite easy to do. Um, and everybody had a sound that, they wanted to push and we were all like in collectives and groups of people and we, you know, and our mates become our business partners and our business partners become our mates and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was exceptional really. It was such a fertile time, wasn't it? For all of us, mm. To, mm. we were all kind of in the right place at the right time. And I think Bristol was just the right size for us because we got to know people we needed to know pretty quickly. Mm. Um, but we're also able to go to London or whatever without too much, you know, hassle. Getting the coach to London or hitchhiking or whatever we used to do, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. just to get in there and do, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and do the meetings we had to do, you know. Um, and then, you know, out of that whole jungle techno, obviously, this whole new scene emerged that is still so huge in Bristol. Mm. Um, 
and a lot of kids are coming in now still, you know, doing different versions of drum and bass and jungle and stuff. Um, and so much of that for me is down to what you guys were up to, you know, and, and what you achieved. It's funny, I don't even listen to the Marty interview, but um, just fast forwarding a little bit. We discussed that time in Miami where we meet you and we discussed the mm -hmm. time when Ronnie called us out for not putting any drum and bass on at the club. Um, and obviously we, you know, we resolved that relatively quickly and you guys were coming in and, mm. and it seemed to be, it just seemed to be the absolute soundtrack of everything for a few years, didn't it? Mm. Mm. So we met him, we, we were in Miami in, I think, 96. I think Marty decided we should go. To, it was the first time I'd been to Miami and I then pretty much went every year for, well, mm. till about two years ago, probably. Um, but, um, you know, and it, it, for me, it never really got any better than that first time when we were there with you guys. And I think you were all there, weren't you? I think it was all four of you, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and we could just... We took, cruise. we took cruise there. My, bro my brother ended up coming, the friends coming. We took yeah. Cruise. Yeah, you all went. Yeah, yeah. We took everybody. And there. it was an exciting time in America because the Americans, it was like they were kind of beginning to understand it because of mm. the because of the hip-hop roots and because of yeah. all your musical roots. It was yeah. a language that they understood, but it was a new way of speaking that language, really, wasn't it, ultimately? Yeah. Yeah. You know. So in terms of the represent thing, once you'd all solidified as a unit and decided that you were going to be this thing, how did all that evolve from there? Well, we got... Once we started our label... We got approached by Brian G and Jumping Jack Frost. They they they'd heard a tape, a mix, uh, a demo that Ronnie managed to get to them, and we ended up getting signed to V Records. We had we at that time we had so much music, it, and a lot of it wasn't full cycle style. So there was we we had like a full cycle style of music. We also had this other style that we were doing as well. And that was kind of more suited to V. So we had this double sort of prong attack. Mm -hmm. and that was very unique because we, were, because we were in Bristol. And, you know, the Bristol thing, kind of because of the massive guys and what Porter's Head and Tricky were doing, yeah. it kind of like open the door and we we were doing our thing and our thing was kind of like this experimental you know we were coming through doing our thing but with the jungle thing with brian g and jumping jack frost being these huge stars in london you know it was important that you know we kind of not get brought in but we were kind of introduced to the London scene through those guys, through V Records. And they kind of almost sort of gave us that seal of approval. Because nobody, even, you know, we were sending that tunes to some of those London cats and they were, they weren't getting it either. But when Brian G and Frost was playing it, it was a different thing. So all of a sudden now, we're, the whole thing's kind of, you know, getting exposed on a whole other level. We're getting a lot, of, a lot of exposure. We're doing Galaxy Radio. We're being invited up to do um, One in the Jungle at the time, Radio yeah. One. Yeah, yeah. And 
And then all of a sudden, I mean, well, all of a sudden, we're doing remixes like every week. We're almost doing a remix every week. It's really ridiculous. And, I, you know, I start getting, uh, you know, making friends with James Lavelle from OS. And we're doing remixes for him. We're doing remixes for Talking Loud. And all of a sudden, James is like, yeah, I want to sign, sign you. And it's like, what do you mean signing me? He's like, what's that about? You know, I'm really understanding. And he's like, you know, we're, we've got our own label. It's like, no, we're good. And he's like, no, let's, well, let's talk about doing an album on Moax. And I'm like, I love Moax. Let's talk about that then. And so we start talking about doing, you know, a, a, a project with Moax. And I'm not sure what happened, but it just broke down and it just didn't materialize. Boom. Talking loud, Giles Peterson, we get a yeah. call from Peterson and Paul Martin. Yeah, we want to talk to you guys. You know, you, you know, what's going on? And I remember, like, me and Ronnie went to, we had a meeting with Giles Peterson and Paul Martin, and they invited us in. And so, you got to imagine, we, Bruce, we're the, we're the epitome of Bristol blaggers by now, right? <laughs> we, 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 we're so confident. We've got, you know, we're just, do you know what I mean? You know, we've grown up in around Surf Mighty, around Massive, around Tricky, around the, where you've learned in the gift of the gab, you know. We're always getting into, you know, the Moon Club for half price or whatever. But, do you know what I mean? Because we're just blagging it. And so we we're in, we get invited to this meeting and they, listen, me and Ronnie just go at them for an hour. <laughs> we don't even let them talk, right? <laughs> And we just talked to them about these plans that we got, right? Yeah, we've got this album thing we want to do. We've got this thing we want to say. Yeah, we've got this live thing we want. And we just sold them this whole project, you know what I mean? That we kind of just made up on the spot, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was like... <laughs> but the thing about it was we were so in sync by then. Like I said, Ronnie would say something, I would finish it. I would say something, and it was just like, boom, 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 boom. And that became the way that we ran our... You know, because me and Ronnie did the bulk of the media interviews for the whole yeah. representing. And so, boom, 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 we just got used to this whole tag teaming thing. Um, so, boom, in the meeting, they were kind of like, these guys are serious. They've got something. Like, we need to. And boom, they gave us, they offered us the deal. And, you know, Ronnie signed the represent, well, the actual project at the time was called State of the Art. We didn't have the name represent at the time. Right. But we signed State of the Art. And that was the inception of what Represent was going to be. We were going to create this, a sort of band that everyone was going to be in, that we were going to make this album. And that's what we did. We sat down after the meeting. We sat down, what we're we going to do. Um, and we talked about what, what it was going to be, how it was going to be, how it was going to sound. And, you know, Ronnie kind of went to work creating the skeletons, creating the, the bulk of the, the project, and then everyone will come in, you know. On any one day, I would be there, I would be there, Sub would be there. But we, you know, Honorly was someone who was around us at the time, amazing voice, like us, strong, energetic, you know, powerful black woman. She came in, she'd be doing vocals, we'd have writing sessions, you know. Um, and prior to that, a couple about two years prior to that, we, uh, me and Ronnie were in this rave in Gloucester and there was this young guy on the mic and he was like, you know, 
he was just like amazing the way his rhyme flow was and Ronnie kept nudging me every time he would get on the mic Ronnie would be nudging he's like like go and get him go and get him like and I, I go I was, what? what's the topic just go and fucking get that guy we need to get that guy and then I was like what are you talking about and then yeah Ronnie goes up to the guy goes listen man and he just sort of just pulled him to the side and he's like right we're doing this thing we got this label we got this light we got this DJ thing we want to do we need you and it was dynamite yeah and he was like, we need you to be our MC. Do you know what I mean? And so, boom, you know, Dynamite was in. And he, he was on the road with us DJing. He came on the first full cycle tour that me, Ronnie, and I did. We drove around Europe in the back of a Mini. And this is the day. I was over a Mini or a Clio. It was a small car. It was terrible. <laughs> but we drove around France. I think we drove for Belgium. Um, I'm not sure we went to Amsterdam, but we drove fucking yeah. far. It was an experience. And this is the day, this is the time when we had big metal. You remember metal record boxes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's two metal record Very boxes well. filled yeah. with dump plates, bags, you know. In a Clio. Yeah, in a Clio. Three, <laughs> and three of us are over six foot. <laughs> <laughs> So that was an experience, but it was great fun. Um, and yeah, good bonding experience. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and yeah, and that was like, so by the time we came to represent, Dynamite would be in the studio with us. Everyone was in the studio and it was a bug, it was a hive, a hive of activity. We were in the Eastern Business Centre um, and we had a studio in there and it was just a hive of activity for the next sort of two years, just writing this material and kind of finishing it and delivering it and yeah when the record came out didn't really do much <laughs> like no one again it was like it was it was all right we were touring with galliano yeah. and john lee we were doing like a lot of talking loud exposés and shows and stuff djing and playing the records but it wasn't until we actually got the band together that things started to sort of change a little bit because we you know we were DJing and we were good at what we were doing dynamite would come on he would dj Lee would sing us stuff and and you know we had that kind of thing but it wasn't like the band band we started doing the band and that's when like i said things started to change we started to get booked to do these things i remember the very first show we did was in laser drum in london and we had these sort of outfits on these like coggles and we were yeah hired. yeah and you know, it was a terrible show. <laughs> it was a terrible show. I remember, like, no one would look up. You know, we were, uh, it was just terrible. But it was the first show. We, we'd learned, you know, a little bit about stage presence. Um, and so we went back to the drawing board. We really looked at how we could make it feel a bit more better, more exciting, and we kind of rebuilt it. And by this time now, we'd... Um, we started rehearsing in, in Channel House in Barton Hill and we just got good. We just practiced every day. We got good and we started to do more shows. We got invited to do Universe and that was a big show for us. Yeah. That was a lot better. And then it kind of built up, built up, built up. And then we got nominated for the Mercury. Yeah. yeah. And that was when everything changed. Yeah. Um, you know, we were building up, we were building up. But when we had the nomination, there was a buzz, like the first, you know, jungle experimental being nominated for this whole thing. And I remember going to the, cause you got, you get, you, when you're invited, you get invited to the nominees party. So there was right. a, 
it was a Friday afternoon, there's a nominees party, and we're walking through this this thing, and it was the first sort of big celebrity event we kind of went to, and I was like, there's Robbie Williams, there's, there's so-and-so over there, there's so and it was like, fucking hell, mate, we've we made it! We've arrived! <laughs> we, made, we reached! <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, you know, we were all starstruck and that, and it was, a, it was a, a big deal, and we were like, well, you know, it's nice, but let's get back to what we know how to do. So we kind of put that to the side, carried on doing what we were doing. And then we get, a, you know, Simon got our manager at the time. So Simon's mm. like, you guys have been invited to play the Mercury Music Awards. Is what? What are you talking about? Like, yeah, you guys are going to be doing the, the show. It's like, wow, we better fucking practice. <laughs> we better go on it. <laughs> <laughs> so... We got a couple of shows to do before then, so we get we're just practicing and practicing. We get we get pretty good, and you know I remember we're all there. We're sat down at the table at the awards. You know I mean, you know, again, who's who? Everybody there, um, and we got this huge table. There's us lot, Frosty. There's Fotech there. There's Bill Riley. There's the record company, uh, and it was a good vibe. It was exciting. Yeah. I mean, we were like we were just happy to be there. We never we never thought we had a hope in hell. You know, we were lost. It was. It just felt too early for us to be to be winning something like that. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know, we were just there, just drinking, having a laugh, just you know, just enjoying it. You know, everyone's suited and booted, and then they, you know, they go right. They're giving out the the, the names for the thing, and all of a sudden they said, "The winner," is, and it's Jules Holland. He goes, "And the winner is represent," and we're like, "Have a laugh. We're like, "Did he say that?" And we're shocked. Like yeah. no one's like, we're like looking around. And I could see Ronnie, Ronnie looked at me, looks like, did he just say us? You're like, have we won? And like, ah! <laughs> oh my God, we won. And we're like, and if you see the video back, like I'm in shock all the way up. I'm walking <laughs> up to the thing, I'm like, <laughs> oh. like I'm the guy in a goldfish bowl, do you know what I mean? And then we, and it was a, it was a surreal moment for about a week. Like yeah. what's just happened. I remember and, walking down Pigton Street the day after it happened, I remember it so well, and these two cars, one was going up Pitt Street, one was going down, and you know it's quite a narrow road, and um, they literally just stopped. One of them was like, I had a soft top, had the roof down, and they were just shouting at each other about how you just won the Mercury, and like the whole of that Montpellier area was just like, it was a, such a massive buzz for yeah. so many people in Bristol who didn't, you know, know you but everyone was kind of rooting for you and it was yeah. such a wonderful little moment i remember it really well yeah and it really felt like that the underdogs the bristol yeah. underdogs again yeah. had come through and yeah we felt that we felt like the whole country was room for us do you know what i mean yeah. like afterwards we won it do you know what i mean because when we played the show everyone got fun it was like you could see no one could quite get it but when we played with and jules introduced and we played you could see people trying to get it, you know what I mean, trying to get it. And they're like, you know, and, and it was like this new emerging culture that had come up by itself and had finally, you know, got got that a light shone on it. And people yeah. were like, there's this thing that, you know, has, has, has proven itself, do you know what I mean? Because we did, we did the work, we did yeah. the steps, we, we earned our stripes. And I think, you know, like, like Massive and like Soul to Soul and like, you know, all the other indie bands that come up from nothing who were, 
who had that rebellious spirit, who had that, you know, first to just do something and have some sort of significance and just have that feeling of knowing that you could, you don't need to be part of society. You can create your own culture and still be valuable and still people will support you. And I think that was a galvaning moment for us. Yeah. And, and then from, from then onwards, it was like a hockey stick. It was ridiculous. You know, for the next four years, our feet never touched the ground. We did, we did all the festivals. We toured all around the world. We got invited to do all kinds of things. And it was a massive, amazing experience for, for us all. We learned so much. You know, we grew even tighter as a family. We toured relentlessly for years. We did so much, so many interviews. Um, we met so many amazing people. And, of course, we did Miami Music Conference at the same time as well. So that was, like, an amazing thing for 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 all. We tried to bring everybody with us, you know what I mean? Yeah, but, yeah. You know, like, the families, we had, you know, we the label started to grow. We started to get more artists in. You know, we started to take what we were learning from, you know, like, the, the people around us, the Mastiffs, the... The, the labels talking loud, you know, we're still good friends with James as well. So we, we soaked in what those guys were doing and we were applying it to us, to, to us and the label. You know, we were trying to like bring people in. We were trying to create something with the brand that we, we were seeing what the people that were ahead of us were doing. We were just yeah. trying to like, again, just trying to figure out how do we make what we're doing bigger, credible, you know, bring more people in, build a, a proper brand, build a proper business. And, you know, it, it was going well, it was working well. The, I think the thing that was difficult, it, it was be, it was not being able to work the way that we'd worked. Yeah. And, and eventually the touring got the best of us, you know, yeah. it was like, it was relentless and it was tiring. And, you know, we were, we weren't naturally and that you know some bands are created on the road yeah and that's what they do they're, they're really good at that I, I imagine kings of leon are like that you know like just you know foo fighters they just they love that on the road yeah yeah, yeah and that's where they grow and thrive we weren't we were studio guys yeah you know we were like we like sitting in dark rooms pushing buttons and making beats like that is where we were in our element and i think that a natural I won't say depression, but there's like a natural thing that when you don't get that, because that's how we, of course, the hour you're on stage, you get that rush of endorphins, but yeah. we sometimes, sometimes we'd be traveling for, for 10 hours to do that one hour gig. Yeah. And, and we're not going home. We're going somewhere else. Yeah. It's going on for three weeks. <laughs> and then when you come back home from that, you're tired. You can't yeah. go to studio. So after about four or five years of that, it's like, right, we need to change. We need to do something else. So we had a break. Everybody came back. We had a break. But by then you can see there's, you know, things are fragmenting a little bit. Relationships, business, label, work, the content's not getting, we're not putting out music. We're on the road too much. Yeah. And, you know, things had to change. You know, and things started to change after that. We did the next album all together. We had a bit, bit more of a longer break. Um, but, yeah, I think as well, there's lots of things that were changing. Yeah. Vin vinyl started to change and became digital. Business models started to change. You know, we weren't really prepared for that. So there was a lot of 
business stuff that was happening that we weren't prepared for. Music, we weren't as prolific and we weren't the new kids on the block anymore. And Jungle wasn't the new sound anymore. Dubstep was starting to creep in. And, you know, other people, England wasn't the, the centre. England was still the centre for, for Jungle, but the Brazilians were coming in now. Yeah. The Americans were coming in now. We were spending a lot of time in America. We were touring relentlessly in America. We, you know, we spent a lot of time in New York, a lot of time in LA, Miami. Uh, and, you know, we could see things were changing really fast. You know, the Japanese as well, we were spending a lot of time touring through Japan, yeah. down through Australia. And you could see the movement was spreading. You know, people were start. we started to get demos from all around the world. We started to, uh, some of the gigs we were going to, we, we, we were, you know, when we first started going around the world, there was a lot of British people there opening up for us. The next time you went around, there was a lot of homegrown people opening up with us, playing their own versions. So we could see this whole thing changing. You could see radios, people doing their own magazines. This industry started to grow and sprout. You know, and it was amazing. You know, this thing that, you know, you would, we were part of. Yeah. All guys kicking cans around in St. Paul's. All of a sudden, we're in Manhattan. Yeah. And people were like, is that... Is that Ronnie's size? <laughs> you know, it was like, it was bizarre. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it is phenomenal. And the whole thing, you know, it's probably like 10 years or something where you go through that process of one minute you're, you know, as you say, sat in a spare bedroom trying to work something out. And the next minute, you're, you know, on a plane somewhere trying to deliver the same thing, but to a different audience and in a different time zone. And, and touring is, touring is, does kill bands unless, you know, unless they're, as you said, unless they're built for it. And a lot of people aren't built for it. Um, no. It's grim. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, we were lucky. The, the first tour we did in America, well, the, fir the first tour we did in America was, um, was Ron, um, Die and Dynamite. We got invited to do a tour with a band called Soul Coffin. Mm -hmm. The drummer was a guy called Yuval Gabe. He ended up becoming a really great friend of ours and a drummer in Represent. He was in Camden Market, and a friend of ours, this is a guy called Horace, he used to have a, a cassette um, a store selling all the rave tapes. Yuval bought a, a mixtape, I think, of Brian G or something like that. He heard our music. He was like, I need, I want to meet these guys. I'm gonna, I want them to open up for us and talk with America. So at the time, this is where, you know, those indie bands, probably, they're still probably doing it, but these indie bands, they would just tour relentlessly, do a college tour around America. So because it was too long, I think it was like about eight weeks, Di couldn't do the whole thing. And they wanted me and Di to go together and said, no, we can't both go. We've got commitments. So Di went for four, three or four weeks, I think it was. And then I went for the other two. Or right. three or four. Dynamite stayed there the whole time. And, we just toured all around America. And that was, that was amazing because we were playing to these indie rock crowds who had no idea what the music they were listening to. And that was great because that was, that was a really taught me a lot about how to win crowds over. Yeah. It was a huge learning curve. And so that was our first tour. The next tour, I mean, and, and we were on a great, the reason why I'm saying this is because the, we were on an amazing tour bus. <laughs> right that was the, that made the difference yeah not a back proper yeah. tour bus yeah exactly right <laughs> it was a proper tour bus with bunk beds yeah. with toilets yeah. with 
TVs and videos, and it was like the first time I'd been on one. And I was like, and it was in America where you've seen on TV, you see these blue bands stepping off this tour, but all of a sudden we're on one. And I'm like, fuck, this is amazing, <laughs> right? You've got your own bunk bed, and it was just beautiful. The next time we toured as Represent, though, the, we got signed to Def Time in America. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a whole other story. <laughs> I could tell you some crazy stories about that. But the first tour we did, they, they rolled out. Every, it was amazing. We had two brand new buses. And before where we had these, you know, I used to call them the coffin. So yeah. on the first tour, everyone had the coffin, like really six foot by six foot. You just lie in it. You couldn't move anything. This, this bus that we had on the first represent tour, we had cabins. It was wow. like first class cabins, huge. And everyone had one. Holy shit. Yeah, it was ridiculous. You had your own TV your own radio station, you could tune into it. It was just amazing. You know, you were a big window and it was like, wow, like totally blew us all away. So we were spoiled. You know, it was it, at that time, it was the luxury, but too much of that, you know, wasn't a good thing. Yeah. It sets you up for a fool, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, can do. <laughs> Listen, yeah, we, like I said, Fortunately, we were all right. And by the time it started to dwindle out, we were still able to, you know, have a certain standard that we were able to keep to. But, yeah, when it starts to, when everything started to, uh, not implode, but I think when it became difficult was when people realised we need to get back into the studio. We need to start making some music. Yeah. But, you know, you left your mark. You did an amazing thing. You carried on with your solo stuff and just, delivered a lot of solid music, which you're still doing now. Yeah. And, you know, it gave you that platform to go and do that and many other things, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, the experience was amazing. I remember we used to go, when we were in America, we'd go to all these second-hand stores, record shops, music stores, and we'd buy loads of old equipment and stuff. And, you know, that was amazing, you know, and speaking to all these old cats about music and equipment and about the era and stuff. And that was great. You know, we'd come back and we'd set all this stuff up in our studios. And it was just like, for, you know, looking back now, it was like going to university. It was mm. this huge learning curve. It was like, just learn, learn, learn as much as you can. Learn about the business. You know, go into all these big festivals. Go in and see Queens of the Stone Age before I even knew who they were. You know, go in to see, you know, we did, we did one of the first Coachellas and, the um uh what's that band american hip-hop band from philadelphia with with um with my guy in the drums with the big afro what's that band's name like the roots oh the roots right got right. you okay yeah yeah, so yeah, they, yeah 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 they opened up for us in uh on wow. one of the first coachellas we did a we did a we did a uh uh a festival in paris and coldplay opened up for us Wow, <laughs> we did. It's nuts. And then we we did a um, a festival, a gig in New Zealand, and Black Eyed Peas opened up for us. Wow. So this is all early. So when they were like all these bands were just early. I mean, the Roots were probably big by then, but you know we were just the new kids on the block. You know, so it was just an exciting time yeah. for us. But at the same time, we're we're learning, we're studying as well. You know, Roots was exceptional. 
you know, they were way tired than we were. But so we were like studying, studying. Same thing with everybody else. We would go around. I remember going to Glastonbury and me and Ronnie and Di, we would sit down and there was this, there was this jump drummer at the time, Toby Pascal. And, yeah, yeah, I remember Toby. And he was doing, he was just playing. He was just sat on this thing, just him on the drums playing yeah. for like two hours. And we were just sat there just watching the technique, like watching what he was doing, yeah. like making notes. And, and that's what we were. We were like these like geeky guys that were like scientists about production, about drums, about basses. You know, we used to get Cy John to come into the studio and just put him through different amps, put him through different speakers and just sample him and say like, now just play this, now just give me a tote. And we were just trying to understand how to make our craft better. Same yeah. thing with Duval. We, when we became friends with Duval Gabay, got, we just got him in the studio. It was like, go and play. <laughs> I mean, we just, do, 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 do. now play jungle riffs. So yeah. we got to play jungle riffs. Now play less kick drums. Now just play the high. And so we were working out how to make our sound better, how to make it fatter, how to, how to give it more weight. And, you know, we would just go through keyboards players, drummers, bassers, singers, and we were just trying to master the craft, learn the art form. And wherever we go, we'd meet people, you know, it, it was amazing. It was a really great, fertile time for the, for the culture, yeah. for the scene and yeah. for us and our education. Yeah, amazing, mate. Amazing. Dude, thank you very much for sharing your knowledge and history and everything else. Really appreciate it. Cool. Um, and it's funny, everyone I've spoken to has said, oh yeah, we should probably do a part two. So I might come back one day and do a part two as well because there's always so much to talk about. But um, I really appreciate it, mate. I really do. It's been amazing to see you again and spend some time. Yeah, cool, man. And, um, super cool to see you again. Likewise, man, likewise. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's pop out for a coffee or something one day. Or... Yeah, definitely, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm about, man. Yeah, good. <laughs> All right, appreciate it. Cool, good. Thank you, mate. Cool. All the best. And you, have a good day. Cheers.